0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Svengali podcast. My name is Renex, and I'm joined by... Javier Montalongo, And we have the great fortune of having Dr. Lawrence Haas with us today.
1: How are you doing, Larry? I'm doing great. That's right. You can call me Larry. All my friends do. I'm delighted to be with you tonight.
0: (laughs) Thank you. I'm really excited to have you on, because you and I have uh, had some brief conversations over email, uh, but you are infinitely more knowledgeable about the field of philosophy and magic than I am. So... I'm really excited to hear some of these
1: opinions and ideas you have a little bit more up close and personal. Well, we can go anywhere that this conversation wants to go into philosophy of magic or performing magic. I'm pleased to have this time with you both. I love it. I love it. I like what you're thinking.
0: Well, the way we usually like to start is to kind of get an idea of who you are outside of magic. So that, you know, this this is a kind of a purposely vague question. So it can be uh, hobbies outside of magic, anything really, you know, family beliefs, things that you think are cool, uh, whatever you want to do with that
1: question, go for it. Yeah. So, um, I've been a professional, I've been studying, um, and performing magic for 27 years, um, and outs and a professional since 2010. So I'm in my 11th year as a full-time pro outside of that. Um, I love reading, I love science fiction, I love fantasy, I love graphic novels and graphic art. I've been you know, reading graphic literature from when I was a kid. Um, I'm married, I have two adult children, and uh, I live in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh,
0: great, and your, uh, your doctorate's
1: in philosophy, right? That's correct, I got my doctorate in philosophy in 1991 from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Great. What did you uh, do your work in, in your doctorate? Well, um, the the philosophy department at, at Urbana-Champaign uh, tended to focus on philosophers in the Anglo-American tradition, which is England and America, a, gr- a great tradition of philosophy. But I was especially interested in the continental thinkers, um, in particular the French philosophers. And I wrote my Doctoral dissertation on um, a great mid-20th century uh, phenomenologist by the name of Maurice Merleau-Ponty. He, uh, I haven't heard about him. Well, he, you know, he, what he really did was study what what's called the phenomenology of perception, which is just a big fancy word for he looked at perception as we live it as we experience it. And he tried to articulate the features of perception so that we could understand how we experience things.
0: Interesting. Well, I'm excited to have our conversation because uh, like I've kind of spoke with you, I've kind of come from the cognitive science lens. So it sounds like there's a lot of overlap from
1: that, but in from different angles. That's exactly right, Rin. Uh, for his time, Merleau-Ponty was really uh, keen on the science, the kind of it, we wouldn't call it neuroscience at the time, but the biological science of mind. He knew that science, and so he saw the science of perception and the and the lived experience of perception as two interrelated uh, uh, explorations.
0: Interesting. So,
1: was he? A, was he a functionalist identity theorist? Um, he was neither exactly. Uh, those are terms that kind of come out of another tradition. Uh, he was uh, the right word, um, even though it's ab- a bit abstract, is he was a phenomenologist, which means he really wanted to study the features of perception. He wasn't trying to explain the neurophysiology of perception. Mm, okay. he, yeah. he was trying to uh, identify the lived uh, features and structures of perception. So he spent a lot of time looking at the experience of optical illusions and figure figure background dynamics. And uh, he was very interested in the way perception um, has meaning, how it radiates lived meaning for our bodies. So pretty abstract, but also sounds really interesting. I'm going to have to check him out. Yeah, he's pretty darn interesting. And it's only about two steps away from that to my becoming a magician. So what, what was the turning point for you? Well, it's a, it's, it's a crazy story. I never really explored magic as a child. That was not a hobby of mine. I was a musician as a child and uh. as a major. Uh, but um, when I was, uh, let me get the year right, when I was 34 years old, I had my PhD in hand. I was teaching in my first job. One night I saw David Copperfield fly on television. And it totally changed my world because I realized that a great magician is using perceptual uh, techniques and psychological techniques to create this very intense experience of what, what I now call, what we call magic. Um, and so, you know, I just woke up. It, It was, it was, uh, it was unlike anything in my life. The light bulb went on, and I became fascinated by the way magicians create uh, the experience of the impossible.
0: Yeah, it sounds like uh, we're definitely interested in similar things.
2: Yeah, uh, I myself started late, man, so I mean, I completely get it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, I in, in some ways, it took me a while to be <laughs> grown up enough uh, to really— yeah to, to really see magic as an art form. And of course, Copperfield, I mean, David is incredible, an incredible magician who thinks so carefully about everything he does. So flying is a, 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 you know, here I am 27 years later, flying is an almost perfect theatrical illusion. And uh, so I started with someone who is, who is really good. So the, uh, the next question that
0: we'd like to start out with and this will help frame the rest of our conversation and i imagine you're going to have a a
1: pretty in-depth answer to this uh what what is art well it's interesting um i the other part of my coming into magic is that i specialized in aesthetics or the philosophy of art so i spent a lot of time teaching and thinking about what art is and um so first of all i would say this um, I don't have a dogmatic view about art. Um, I recognize that what art is, is contingent to some extent on the culture and the time and history. Um, Art has a deep, deep history to it. And over time, uh, different definitions of art have emerged. And those definitions have been very powerful in their time. And then as history moves forward, other definitions arise. So I'm no dogmatist about it. But uh, what I do feel like I I know about art is that it's not just whatever anybody thinks is art. Uh, Art isn't purely relative. Uh, Art is uh, contingent, but it's not just whatever anybody throws out there is art. Um, art tends to be created and designed by artists. Hmm. And the process of creating and designing and constructing something is very different from, like, vomiting or, <laughs> you know, or, or any other just, you know, unconscious bodily reflex. So what I do think about art pretty much, you know, generally is that it's creative and it's designed and it's created and designed by a person or a team of people. And, uh, and in, at different times in history, there've been different goals for art. Uh, in, in, you know, early in the medieval period, the goal was to give glory to God. But in the 20th century, the primary function of art seems to have been uh, for the artist to express their point of view on the world. And that was a very popular, very widespread uh, notion about the function of art. Uh, it's for artists to express their way of perceiving and looking at the world and their point of view. And uh, that's probably, you know, there are some other competing theories in the 20th and 21st century, but that's been the dominant view. And I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to that most of the time.
2: I like that, actually, because uh, I, I really wish a lot of performers will look at art that way actually you know because anybody can say anything is art just for the sake of saying it's art you know but uh what you just said makes a lot of sense and i wish more people would look at it that way
1: well thank you you know one of the things about you know the view that whatever anybody says is art is art is it so um devalues yeah what, what yes. and i do <laughs> yeah You know, I mean, it's like, oh, well, if anything I say or do is art, then why am I working so hard to to create a beautiful painting or a piece of music? You know, so it doesn't that the relativistic definition of art doesn't really hold up um, to anybody who thinks about it for very long. Mm -hmm. But it becomes much more difficult to talk about what it is. And uh, so. You know this idea that uh, when I'm creating my magic, I'm trying to express to my audience my way of looking at the world. Uh, that's pretty. That's pretty comfortable to me.
2: Yeah, yeah, I like that. It's very comforting to hear, actually. Oh, good.
0: Yeah, I, I agree as well. I think uh, that helps differentiate the like uh, mechanical creations for like pragmatic purposes from art, because a lot of times those types of inventions don't have that self-expression component.
1: That is a beautiful spot on comment. Uh, People who think about art try to make that exact differentiation. And it pivots around, you know, the artist's point of view being expressed as opposed to the very important work of craft, which is to kind of mechanically bring about, you know, a predetermined design. And there's nothing wrong with craft. My father was a great craftsman but um it's just different from the expressive work of artists yeah
0: completely agree
2: yeah man uh, i did a show once and i was so like uh it was almost like a slap to the face when uh, somebody i don't think they meant it as an insult but uh, it made me feel less because there was these performers we performed it with a variety uh uh you know troupe, and uh one of the guys uh, kind of like said oh yeah we have uh noise artists and such and such and then they mentioned magicians and i'm like we're not even in that same category you know we actually you know like if you do your job right we we script everything the way we script everything and there's a lot of hard work you know not just making actually noise for the sake of making noise
1: yeah i totally agree (laughs) when when i got into magic one of my very important uh, you know personal missions was to help everyone, including my academic colleagues at that time, understand that magic could be art. Mm-hmm. It could be a great art form if magicians understood that and work to the level of um, expressing themselves. Yes. It's the exact now, purpose we, of this podcast. completely yes. agree. Well, you know, that I'm so glad we're on the same page. The beauty is, You and I, we all live in a time where there have been some great magical artists Mm -hmm. like um, Penn and Teller is just one really good example. Oh, yeah. Penn and Teller's show is so filled with their point of view. Mm -hmm. Everything they do is expressing their way of looking at the world. Yeah, And I so admire them for that. And David Copperfield, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, David Copperfield's show is filled with his particular take on the world. And, uh, of course, then there are many others like Juan Tamariz and Jeff McBride and even Matt King, a comedy magician, who still has a very strong point of view. I think Matt King is a great artist. Um, he's a comedy artist, which... Mm-hmm is no problem at all, but he has a very strong point of view that he shares during his shows.
2: Yeah.
0: So now to move something that, uh, move on to something that we don't necessarily agree on, uh, which is deception and magic. That's, uh, this is kind of what you and I have talked about a little bit over email. Um, and I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on the podcast because most of the podcast has been pretty biased in that. It's been me giving my viewpoints on it. So
1: deception and magic. Well, so this is a complicated question, and um, I'm not, I'm still working this through myself, so full disclosure. So I think it comes down to the notion of what deception means. So if deception is my intentionally lying to someone so I can take advantage of them for my own personal purposes, Mm -hmm. which is what, many lies are right i don't don't think that's how how i don't think that happens in magic so um on the other hand if deception means eliding the truth of things to give your audience an astonishing experience for them well yeah then magic has deception yeah. But notice notice how far that is from our commonplace notions of lying. You know, artists of all kinds use techniques to create their desired effects. And those techniques, the filmmaker isn't accused of lying. And the painter is not accused of lying. Uh, the novelist isn't accused of lying. But they are using techniques that elide the truth to create their effects And I think magicians are actually like that. I think there's an important distinction between
0: lying and deception, deception being more of the uh, uh, less
1: nefarious use of it. Yeah, well, then I'm fine. You're right. You know, the thing is, is people think of magic as the art of deception, and that doesn't feel right to me. I don't think mad magicians uh deceive people any more than painters and filmmakers do yeah Mm -hmm. i learned that theory from mcbride
2: when he came to lecture and i and i loved it because he did a trick to us and i'm like oh it's this method and he straight up lied like cuz he showed us the method after and he totally because he lied he made the trick even more uh powerful because i knew that trick you know i read it through tarbell and it's like oh i know this you know and then he straight up said well you know whatever method you think it is it's not this is actually uh through connection and and such and such and it was so well played out that i actually believed that it, it was a real magical moment and then until he explained it then i'm like you just slide and then he pretty much said the same thing you just said is like, we're no different than an actor pretty much, you know, it's, it's part of the performance. And ever since then, it just completely like, uh, like just completely opened my mind, you know, like to that, that struggle, you know, that, uh, that Taron speaks of, you know,
1: well, we have just gotten to a fascinating point in this discussion because, Mm -hmm. because, um, we can use our powers, uh, for good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and what I mean by or for ill and what I mean by that is and and Jeff showed you an example of this of a really direct, intense lie. Yes. Now, I don't tend to do that. Right. And and he doesn't either, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. You you know, um, I mean, it's too easy. Uh huh. Um, And lying, being lied, uh, lying to people and and being lied to tends to be a feel bad. Mm -hmm. So my approach is to elide the truth for the the sake of the audience. Right. Um, And and um, that's how this truth seeker, I'm a philosopher after all, that's how this truth seeker um, sleeps at night. Mm-hmm. You know, if I thought of what I was doing as lying to people to take advantage of them, oh right. my God, I wouldn't be a magician. Right. But if I think of myself as someone who uses psychological and verbal techniques to help audiences feel astonishing wonder, which is, I believe, a gift, then, um, then I feel good about that, and I also hold myself to that standard, which is using my powers for their good Mm -hmm. rather than using my techniques and knowledge to take advantage of them Mm -hmm. so one thing i wanted to touch
0: on uh the idea that magicians don't use deception or eliding the the truth was the term you used sure Um, any more so than a painter or an actor does i'm not sure i agree with because a magician without using some sort of deception has no illusion, like that the artwork can't come to fruition versus you could imagine a painting or a work of written um, art that
1: doesn't use any of these tools. Well, that's quite interesting. And, and you might be right. Uh, for the sake of exploring this a little bit, I think the, the novelist knows that um, her world doesn't exist even though she's writing as though it does. She imagines it fully in her mind, and her job is to make the reader feel like that world exists. So I would think of that as kind of similar to what I do. I am creating, I'm weaving a spell, I'm creating a world in which the impossible can happen. And uh, the filmmaker, too. Filmmakers filmmakers are endlessly manipulating images to create the effect that they want in the scene. So they are alighting the truth. I like that. And, and, and I think the same thing is true with painters, because every painter faces the problem. Well, most every painter, not quite every painter. Most painters face the problem of Trying to make three-dimensional experience manifest on a flat canvas. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just beautiful. It's very magic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and do they lie? No, they use techniques to try to make the viewer feel like it has that dimension.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I I agree there are probably differences between the arts, but at the end of the day, I don't want to make m- magicians more like liars than any other artist. And I think lying is the wrong uh, metaphor. Yeah, um, I agree. I, I mean, I tend to use
0: the word deception, but it sounds like alighting the truth is kind of, we're using the same same definition
1: but different words. Yes, and now I will grant you this toward your point of view, Ren, which is that I think seriously about um, when and how I am alighting the truth. I, I, I personally do. I, I don't want to use the direct lie if I can avoid it. Yeah. Sometimes I do. There are some times that the direct lie is absolutely necessary, but but it's a kind of a blunt instrument, and it doesn't make me feel very good. So I try to use better, richer psychological techniques than the blunt instrument.
2: Uh, or just become a silent act, then you won't have to worry about lying.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, w- but the same things in the way the staging is and the way the, you know, the birds appear. I mean, yeah, we're all in it together. We are yeah. all, all eliding, uh, um We are all trying to, in- let me put it another way. We are all trying to uh, um, entice audiences to enter into a mind frame where they suspend their disbelief. And that's really beautiful, and it's really difficult. And, and the last thing I'll say is it is really easy to take advantage of people once they have moved into that place. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: And th- this is kind of moving on to a, a next topic,
0: which, if I'm remembering correctly, you may have expressed some resist- uh, resistance, to, which is mixing the worlds of morality and art together. Mm-hmm. Am I remembering that correctly?
1: Well, I'm not sure. I'll say a little more about it and I'll see if I can say something.
0: Uh, without going, I, I don't want to like reference our whole emails and go through sure. that, that whole conversation. Uh, but is it possible to create immoral art? I guess is kind of the, the easiest way to oh. create that statement.
1: Oh, gosh. I don't. Uh, yeah, I'm not. Well, that's really hard. Mm-hmm. Um and the philosopher in me wants to sit here and think. But I think the first thing I would say is in principle, it is possible to create immoral art or unethical art. Um, you know, I mean, if if art is expressing one's point of view, you know, one might have a, a deeply unethical or murderous point of view um, that you express in a work of art, um, you know, the measure of art You know, by that theory, is not uh, a work of art is expressing a moral point of view. It's expressing a point of view. So, it's possible to have somebody with a deeply unethical point of view create a work of art. I think.
0: Yeah, I agree. To kind of expand on this question, and this kind of makes it harder for me, at least, is a lot of self-expression has to do with expressing pain, and that can be very therapeutic for people. But I, I'm not. Is expressing pain and subjecting to other people's, subjecting other people to your pain, is that ethical?
1: Yeah, really good question. Um, here's what I might answer, um, and I take your your comment very seriously as a performer, which is it might be artistic, but that doesn't mean anybody should have to watch it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, part I won't have an audience very long in magic at least, if I go out there and abuse people, you know, with my pain or traumatize them or, you know, I, I mean, they it might be artistic in the sense that it's expressive, but I might not have an audience. Uh, you know, no, I'm not, no one's obligated to come to my magic show if I'm abusive or, you know, traumatic. So it could be artistic, but it might not be good for my magic business and it might not be good for my audiences and ultimately i suppose it might not even be that great for me so i'll tell you a quick story about this i i must i do um some of my pieces are storytelling pieces and many many years ago i created a beautiful piece um that was heartfelt from from a personal place that referenced very vaguely referenced a, a a a little boy dying of cancer. And it was done respectfully. It was not done uh, salaciously or crudely. It was artistic. There was a lot of distance in it. But one night I was performing this piece and I looked out and a woman in the front front row was crying. And I've never performed that piece again. And I said to myself, trauma is not magic. I had crossed a line with that piece. I had traumatized someone, um, and I've been very thoughtful about that since. It might be artistic, but that doesn't mean my show business really wants me to be doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there might be venues where I can do magic that traumatizes the audience or creates um, a very, very powerful, painful, emotional experience, kind of like the old film, The Deer Hunter. But but, um, that doesn't mean it's good for my magic business because I need people to book me to perform shows for them. So that's where I'm kind of at. You can create what we might call dark or painful art, um, but um, that doesn't mean it's necessarily good for my audience or good for me.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I actually saw a show where – Uh, somebody did the same thing, but it wasn't, you know, well done. And it was, it was really disgusting. Actually, it left a really nasty taste in my mouth. And, uh, I never wanted to do that ever. I mean, I never even thought of it, but I knew for a fact that after I saw this performance, uh, this guy used a story. It wasn't even his story. Uh, it was just a story that he regurgitated from another magician and it was really unsettling. And a lot of people were upset about it too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I, I think part of it is that magic. Now maybe we'll disagree, but I think people come to a magic show and want to come to a magic show and want to experience magic with a kind of a positive valence. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that's a pretty wide swath. You know, there are a lot of different positive tones, but I don't think people want to go to a magic show and see the assistant. Um, uh, kind of be violated. Um, you know, I mean, you know, that's kind of what Ricciardi did. You know, he cut the woman his, you know, the woman in half and people came up and looked at the corpse and that was the end of the show. But, you know, you know, that's, that's a really rare exception. Mm -hmm. Most people go to magic for wonder, astonishment, delight. And, uh, You know, we can push our audience into negative space and uh, but I think it's very risky to do that. And um, let me give you quickly uh, just my alternate model is um, that I want to bend the expectations of my audience.
0: But I don't want to
1: break them. Mm -hmm. If I break the relationship by going too far or too dark or too heavy, um, then uh, I've lost my audience. So I try to have this beautiful dance where they are hoping for something at the magic show. I bend their expectations, but I keep us involved in this um, sophisticated dance.
2: Dude, for reals, man. I, I struggle with that every day, so <laughs> I understand. <laughs>
1: well, and and we're all gonna make mistakes. yeah I mean, you know you can you you know you can go too far like I did with the piece I told you about. Yeah, um mm-hmm. you know, or we cannot go far enough and then we become very blase. You know, so finding our artistic place where we are exciting and surprising, rather than cliche without um, being abusive to our audience. Notice, this is the work of ethics. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when I teach students, what kind of performer do you want to be? You know, um, there's nothing in the literature of magic that teaches us how to be ethical people. Right. Uh, Just like there's nothing in the literature of painting or music or acting. and so we have to get that ethical sense from elsewhere, but we also have to use our common sense because because as, as performing artists, we need audiences. Yeah. So that's what I'd say about that.
2: No, so, man, that's really good. Thank you.
0: One, uh, one possible counterpoint, uh, I recently read in one of Oscar Wilde's books is uh, he was claiming that art can't be harmful. And he kind of invokes the example of a, a sad play or a sad movie where you you grieve with the characters but afterwards you're you're fine so you, you may cry in the midst of experiencing the art kind of like how that uh, you said that woman did during your story but it, it could be the case that they weren't actually
1: harmed afterwards i totally agree with that um and what we're talking about there might be called tragedy yeah. you know yeah. one of the great forms of art Um, you know, from the ancient Greeks was the tragic form. The Greeks innovated tragedy. And tragedy has this long, incredible history, as you both know very well. Um, The issue, and and tragedy is exactly that, Um, you know, as I think Aristotle said, what tragedy does is it allows people to uh, purge these deeply negative experiences so that they feel better when they leave the theater. Now, when you go to something advertised as a tragedy, you know that's what you're heading in for. Yeah. When you go to something advertised as a magic show, you don't. Sure. And that's the hitch, because people can end up in your show without expecting one thing and then being served up something that is so painful or distasteful to them. All right. Now, that doesn't mean you couldn't create, I suppose, I don't know, it doesn't sound like it makes much sense to me, a tragic magic show. Um, But you could create a dark magic show or a bizarre magic show.
2: Now we're talking.
1: Now we're (laughs) talking. And now the audience knows what they're in for. Yeah. So the trauma came for that woman because uh, she was at a magic show. She wasn't at a bizarre magic show
2: Mm
1: -hmm. you know and and that was on me i i I did a bizarre piece of magic in a context where she had she couldn't possibly expect it right yeah that's fair so what i do like to tell uh, when i teach about character to our magic students at the magic and mystery school is let your audience know by your character who you are and what your show is going to be about. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to prepare our audience very subtly for the show that we're about to give them. And uh, we do that by, through our character, the way we address the audience, we do it through the introduction that the MC delivers for us. You know, Mm -hmm. all of this helps set the stage for me to do the magic I'm going to perform. So what sometimes happens is people don't have the pre-show worked out, and then they yes. just out and do something dark, and the audience is like, what the hell?
2: Yes. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah.
2: Been there before, man. I hear yeah.
1: you. <laughs> this is how we learn, right? I learn yep. from every show. I learn from every single show. Yes. Yeah.
0: So another topic that we're kind of starting to touch on, uh, and this is another thing that we briefly talked about uh, in our emails that we corresponded with, is kind of the stereotype of what a magician looks like and whether or not that's harmful or not to uh, magicians being taken seriously as artists.
1: Yeah, what a good question. So I my views on this have kind of changed a little bit over the years. Um, so when I started in magic, I, I felt like, you know, uh, the images that we often saw, first of all, they were all men, uh, and they all tended to be white men. And, and, you know, that's kind of, that's deeply alienating to many people. Um, and they tended to be 19th century men wearing tails. And, uh, you know, so I was rebelling against that. I mean, you know, I was the philosopher magician, which is already kind of rebellious. Um, but... And and so I still think that that's true. We do not want to merely repeat old, hollow character shells that aren't relevant to, you know, contemporary times. But I do think there is something important about costume and look that we have to look like we're magicians somehow. You know, if, if we look like we're... You know, on vacation in cargo pants, um, the show isn't going to be very good. You know, so some of it is um, kind of we're back to the pre-show thing again. Yeah. Creating the experience that this is a special person who might have something wonderful to show me. And so, for instance, I do tend to wear black. Um <laughs> you know, black and white or, uh, you know, black with, you know, uh, my suit and vest and pants are black. Um, I don't have a tailcoat, though. Yeah. Uh, but but my and my shirts either are white or they are, uh, you know, kind of a rich blue. And this goes along with the design aesthetic that's there in my stage and my lighting and everything. Um, but I, I, I I've come to feel the importance of black. I think I think black is not absolutely necessary, but it does make it easier for our audience to understand that we're magicians.
0: It's an interesting thought. I haven't uh, thought of much about, I mean, obviously we have kind of the new aesthetic, which is all black, tattoos, beards, but I haven't, uh, haven't drawn the connection between the black, of like the tailcoat and the black of uh, the
1: new kind of V-neck aesthetic. Yeah, it's so, it, and and you know, this is a, especially an area I don't I wouldn't propose to like be uh, too rule driven, but because there are so many different ways a magician can look, um, and, but I think there wants to be something about them that looks deeply interesting, like I want to spend time with this person, and uh, that can happen in lots of different ways. You know, David Blaine made that happen with short sleeve shirts and jeans. Um, There are a lot of different ways it can happen, but I think if I'm wearing cargo pants, I have a lot harder time doing my job.
2: Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. (laughs) I see that so much, and it's painful,
1: man. It's painful. Yeah, you know, I, I know, I understand it. I mean, I work, uh, you know, I teach and direct a lot of younger magicians, older ones as well, but I understand they, people want to feel casual mm-hmm. and they want to create a feeling that the show is casual and I get that. That's a very good goal, mm-hmm. but, but what is the place here? What is it that makes the person watching you feel like you're a special Right. You know, that's what I tried to help magicians find. What is it you're wearing or doing or saying that makes the audience feel like this is a special moment? Right.
0: What are the what are some of the questions that you ask people or some of the techniques
1: that used to help people discover
0: what that is for them?
1: Yeah. Um, well, so, yes, uh, we're touching on, a, on one of the most difficult challenges for magicians. And that is uh, kind of identifying and being at home with their character Mm. Um, is very difficult because you can go to every magic shop in the world and there's nothing there behind the shelves that will help you with this. This is a theatrical question. And the place you learn about characters by working with theater artists. Um, And, you know, I, I, I have quite a bit of theater training in my background, but I've also worked with Bob Fitch and other theater artists to help identify these issues. So um, I think the thing I would, I always ask, um, this is the way I put it when I was teaching magic in college, I'd say, what we're trying to do is help find your character, that, that part of you that you want to share with your audience when you perform magic. So I would say to them, what do you love to do on Saturday night? you've got nothing else going on. You have three hours. What is your passion project? Your deepest, most sincere passion project? What would that be? And, um, that question often led my students into discovering their character. Hmm. Um, what are, what are you, and I'll just raise this for both of you, but I mean, it kind of generally, what are you most passionate about? What part? what, what what is, where is your spirit and your passion? What do you love to do or share with people? And, um, you know, often we want to be cool. I'm really cool. But <laughs> the truth is, the truth is, uh, interesting characters are uh, uncovered when we go hot. Mm. Watching someone be a cool on stage is just not that interesting. Yeah. Not for more than 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. watching someone be excited and passionate and energized about something they're doing that's interesting yeah so yeah, this you- kind
0: of uh, also moves into uh one of our the last questions which is also not an easy one uh making magic meaningful
1: mm. how do we do it Gosh. Oh, my gosh. Well, you both have had wonderful questions tonight. I mean, this is this has been a wonderful, great conversation. Oh, thank so you. This, this is a very big subject. So I think part of the way I approach this, and I do teach about this a lot. Um, let's talk about uh, le- I'd like to start by talking about what feels more or less meaningless. So if I Come out and show you a technique without having anything to say about it here look at this and I do a technique for you um that might be momentarily surprising but um not interesting it's like for trick's sake yeah yeah it's like someone playing a scale yeah You know, imagine going to someone's house and their child comes out and plays uh, D scales on the piano and then a G scale. And, you know, I mean, you'd be bored after five minutes of this because watching someone do technique is boring. Yeah. And it's only one step from boring to meaningless. Hmm. So how do we make magic meaningful? I think is by asking what is this piece of magic about besides the technique or besides the prop what could this be about besides the prop you know when magicians every trick in a magician show is about and now i got some cups and look they've got holes in the bottom and now i've got some cards and there are six queens and there are six jacks and now i've got a piece of rope isn't rope cool I mean, you're already bored just hearing me do those three pieces of shtick. (laughs) The props are not interesting. What's interesting to people is life, human life. Yeah. The experiences they go through, the pains they feel, the joys they have. My mentor, my teacher, the great Eugene Berger said, magic is about life. Tricks are about the props. I love that. And that's, uh, the longer I've thought about that, the truer that seems. (laughs) So, to come back now to the question of meaning, and I am absolutely Eugene's student in this regard, what could this piece be about besides the technique or the props? It's all right to have, you know, a piece in your act that's about the props, but you know, seven pieces about the props is pretty thin, you know, so one area of card magic, which I know very well, I do a lot of card work, you know, um, Vernon was really smart about this. The great master Dive Vernon was so smart because Vernon would make them about gambling or getting cheated at gambling. Vernon was really smart about making his presentations about about some element that humans would find interesting, like being cheated or gambling. Ricky Jay was like this, too. So, you know, they're not about the cards. The cards are just the instrument with which the music is sung. Now, that that's my goal. I may not always achieve it. But I know that that's where I want to head.
2: You know that's very important to know. You know, at least you know. I think it's it's almost like it, admitting, uh, you know, you you have this this thing, but you're always working on it. And I think everybody should probably like strive
1: for that. You know. You know. Yeah, it's so hard. Yeah. I mean, the thing I would say toward the end of our conversation, magic is so hard. Yeah. You know, Teller, a a good friend of mine, Teller, you know, once said to me, one thing that makes magic so hard is that uh, magicians have to build their own instruments. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Another thing that makes magic so hard is that we have to try to give people this gift of wonder and astonishment that they're resisting us on. They're sitting out there trying to figure out how it's done, and yeah, nonetheless, yeah. I have to find a way to elide that desire in them, so I can give them this gift. <laughs> and then the last thing I'll say that makes magic hard is we have to find a way to make it meaningful when there's been such a long history of trivial scripts. Uh, I, you wouldn't even call them scripts. I yeah. call it I call it patter blather. <laughs> there's a long history of patter blather. And we have to, you know, as thinking magicians, we have to live ourselves, lift ourselves above that tradition. Yeah. So one of
0: the problems that uh, I personally struggle with, and I think a lot of people um, would agree with this, is so I I have this goal of making magic meaningful and I have a I have a piece of magic, the actual, you know, slights and everything. And then I have the story or the message, The, the actual combining of those two pieces seems very tacked on a lot of times where you could remove the magic piece entirely and the message would be still be there And in other words like the magic is an integral part of the message and i think that's for me at least the hardest part and i was curious if you have any thoughts on that
1: i do that's such a sincere and real problem so um, it, it is because there's this thing I want to say and, and then, then there's trick I know and I try to put them together. And just as you say, it can feel like, you know, it can feel like it, it, I'm pasting, you know, an elephant onto a car, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so one way I approach this person and I'm no different from you. I'm in the same spot. One way I approach this is I look. Instead of starting from the idea at the top of my head, I try and look at the actual magical effect in the piece that I'm working on. What is it that's actually happening in this piece? Oh, okay. The rings. Wait a minute. The rings. Are they connecting? Or are they becoming free from each other? Oh. Oh. You know, so I try to look at the actual effect that the props that are that is happening with the props and that I try to step from there to what I want to talk about. So that makes it a smaller step rather than going from a top down idea into it, into a you know trick that has no relation to it. I, I personally, I start with the a magical effect with, that's happening with the cards in my hand and then i try to think what could that be about and that has helped me close the gap
2: mm.
0: even with that i mean it, it still definitely seems difficult like take like the ambitious card as an example is, you know, it almost has a story built into it of you know rising back to the top but uh presentations of that still have that really almost cheesy
1: element to it they do you know it because Uh, I have come to actually believe recently that there are some tricks uh, that really uh, just can't be saved. Um, (laughs) And and I'm not saying ambitious card, because I I know some people who've done some marvelous presentations for that, actually. Tommy Wonder has a really good one. Uh, But I think there are some tricks that are either too implausible or too cheesy to... uh, for your audience to be able to make believe.
2: Yeah, I, I agree 100 percent, man, for real. Uh, yes.
1: You know, one thing I, my audience needs to be willing to make believe with me. Mm-hmm. And if I'm saying things or doing things that, you know, that jars them out of that state, I'm doomed to failure. I can't even make believe you're doing that.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, you, you know, so um so I this is part of the alighting thing. I try to I tried to go on tiptoes rather than say things that are wildly unbelievable. Um, so, for instance, very quickly, um, I think it's a really hard thing to sell your audience that you are changing the colors of the backs of cards by wiping them on the table. You know, the old color changing deck thing like, yeah. OK, I'm, I'm going to wipe my red card against the blue card on the table. And, oh, my God, look, it's blue. I don't think anybody can make believe that. So I'm not going to do it that way. Mm-hmm. It's going to be about something different than look what I can do that no one can make believe. hmm.
0: That's a it's a really interesting way of kind of viewing the quality of different effects that uh i,
1: I definitely haven't thought about well I, this is what i do i think about these things i teach about them and also if it comes as any comfort i'm wrestling with them every single day in my own magical work yeah.
2: i think yeah for sure man yeah i think we all do Yeah.
0: Okay, uh, we're just uh, we're nearing an hour. We have, I guess, nine minutes or so until we hit the hour mark. Um, any any last thoughts? I mean, kind of the mission of this podcast is how do we make magic more meaningful? And we've kind of touched on a lot of the roadblocks. I think that are at least important to me. You know, we have morality. I mean, what even is art? How do we make things meaningful? Mm. Um, but having that goal in mind, is there any kind of last thoughts that you'd like to share with everyone?
1: I do. I I try to say this when I can, and you've just given me a perfect opportunity for it. Um, The world we live in, especially these days, good heavens, needs magic. People in the world need magic. They really do. I mean, life is hard, and things are tough, and people are afraid, and people are overworking. And magic is a great gift for people. Um, it can be an entertainment and it can be lots of laughs and that's fine, but it also, the magic we perform of uh, speaks to people and can speak to people in deep and powerful ways. So I try to invite magicians to remember you're not just honking around, you know, people look for magic and we are called to do this for people. We have the ability and the knowledge to give people astonishing wonder. So I I try to invite magicians to remember the calling and do what we can, all of us, to create magic that touches people and moves them. Wow, really, really great words to end with. Thank you.
2: Yeah, seriously.
1: You're very welcome. It's been such a pleasure to talk with both of you. Thank you. Yeah. You're yes. cool. So
0: uh, one final thing is uh, where, where can people find you, uh, social media, if they want to come see your show,
1: any of that? Yes. So um, uh, um, I'm Facebook is the place that I tend to be. Most of all, people can touch base with me through Facebook. I'm also always available through the McBride Magic and Mystery School because I am the dean there. And, uh, and we have Mystery School Monday every Monday night. And Jeff and I, Jeff McBride and I, were on live. And um, and then also one last very important thing: people can sign up for my every other month newsletter, which is high content, low sales. And they can do that by going to theoryandartofmagic.com. www. com and you just there's a free gift, an, an essay and a, a routine uh, sign up for the newsletter. And uh, I promise high content, low sales. <laughs> hey.
0: I, I and like then it. one other thing i wanted to start asking people is any book recommendations. I think uh, it would do well for magicians to read more.
1: Absolutely. I, I really do think so. So, uh, you know, good gosh. Oh, my gosh. Well, so. For people interested in close-up magic in the real world, restaurants, bars, when they reopen, um, the, the, the the very best book is Eugene Berger's Mastering the Art of Magic, which is available. It is still in print. Um, I have some at my website if people are interested, Mastering the Art of Magic. And then the other book I'll mention for you here is from one of my other teachers. Uh, for people who want to be Better performers with their eyes in their hands. Uh, Everyone wants to read Juan Tamariz's book, The Five Points in Magic. Yeah,
0: that's been on
2: my list, actually.
1: Oh, man. These are two books that changed my life. They rocked my world.
0: Anything else outside of the world of magic?
1: Um, Yeah, you know, the book that transformed me into a philosopher in the first place was Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I've heard of it. I've been reading to read it. Yeah, it's a very philosophical book. It was written in the early 70s. It's very Zen. There's a lot of Buddhism in it. Uh, What it's really about is um, doing the things that we're trying to do with high quality and peace of mind.
0: Yeah, it sounds right up my alley. I've been uh, doing a lot of studies on Buddhism, Taoism, Zen recently.
1: Yes, I've I've taught Asian Asian well because I came to philosophy by way of uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and then Buddhism. Um, I taught a lot of Asian philosophies and uh, and you might check out some Alan Watts. There's some wonderful. Yeah, I've read I think probably ten of his books or something by now. I love him. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. All right. Uh, anything else? Anything else you want to share? I think we've gotten a, a lot of great resources from you, so thank you. Hey, Larry, I have one quick one question. Uh, you said you were a musician. Uh, what did you
1: play? Um, well, I, I played guitar nice. and I was also a singer. I, I would say my voice was really my m- sharpest instrument. Uh, and I learned how to play the guitar to accompany myself. So um, that's what I do. I, uh, it's now my hobby. I still play guitar and sing, but uh, magic is my profession. So
2: I started off as a musician, too. I actually wanted to be a musician, but uh, to me, magic was easier.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I'll tell you. I mean, you know, guitar is so wonderful. I mean, so wonderful, but very difficult. Yes. Well, that's great that we have that in common. Yes. yes.
0: (laughs) You too, man. All right. Thank you again for coming on, Larry. Really appreciate it.
1: Totally my pleasure. I wish you both the very best and the best for your podcast. Yes, thank you so much. It's been a
0: pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you, everybody. This has been the Svengali podcast. I've been X. And I'm Javier Montalongo. You can find us everywhere at Svengali.life. That's the website, Instagram, Facebook, all of that. And we will see you next time. Thank you, guys.